Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Live Booleans. As always, I'm here with my co-host Alex. Alex, how you doing? Costa, I'm doing great. That's Costa. Great. Costa. <laughs> We're here on a uh, sunny afternoon. Enjoying the sunshine together. In a room. In a room. Still some sun outside. Some sun outside. This week we have a awesome podcast with Ruben Morehouse. Ruben is from Noble Steed Games. He's the founder and director, and he's been responsible for leading a range of game development projects for clients, for you know both critical and commercial success. Uh, he is also the he was also named the 30 under 30 in ANZ and game development. Um, and he is, yeah, he's done a bunch of things. I actually, we, we I think we, you were at that talk, right? I was. Yeah. Sitting right next to you. I'm offended you don't remember I can't this. I remember. There's too many talks. Uh, we, we came across Ruben at a talk at GCAP, and that talk was around game production for indie teams. So it was kind of like really practical advice on the types of tools that you can use to fix production issues that you have. Um, and yeah, it was a really good breakdown of how you can, how to kind of monitor problems and then catch them before they turn into to larger problems. So we, we did a bit of a deep dive into that this episode as well. Um, and just got, got to understand and got to know more about Ruben and his, his journey. He's previously worked in Silicon Valley. You'll hear a, bit, a little bit about that. Um, the types of projects that he's worked on, you know, from, uh, SMG studios and a bunch of other studios as well. Uh, how his team has 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 grown and where 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 the company actually started. That was an interesting one as well. Um, and yeah, just knowing about culture at, at the company and a lot around the production side. And I really like that because that's that's something that um, I feel like doesn't get covered a lot in, especially in indie teams. You know, people go from one man team to triple a studio and you know a lot of the people a lot of the a lot of the producers we've spoken to on the podcast previously have been from larger studios so mm. it's good to get an understanding of the challenges that smaller indie teams have in terms of production and how they manage that mm. yeah and as always whatever platform you're listening to us on feel free to give us a thumbs up a five star a tip of the hat I don't know all the platforms and how they they uh, do the approval, but um, yeah, enjoy that. Oh. Enjoy the episode. Enjoy the episode. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, enjoy the episode. It's <laughs> <laughs> nice, scary. Awesome, Ruben. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. No worries. Great to be here. So you are one of the co-founders of Noble Steed games that's that's what it's called now used yes to be no- noble steed Nomos. games used to be Nomos studios i'm still kind of getting used to the new name myself as well <laughs> if i uh, accidentally say Nomos studios <laughs> you know, i mean no noble steed yeah. Games. Yeah. so so yeah tell us about the studio um like what are you what are you currently working on there and you know how did it how did it all begin yeah uh how it all began we started uh four or five years ago it was me and a few other folks um basically started just because we were people who liked working on our own games and we're all kind of working at uh, at a, a, a bigger tech company, Nomos, who's kind of our sister company, parent company vibes. Um, we were working on uh, some 
some of our own kind of hobby projects, um, but all kind of had met each other and all kind of knew that we were all in the game space and interested in games. Um, and one of the founders of Nomos basically said to us, hey, you're all making games. That's pretty cool. We might want a, a studio that does some game stuff. So to give you a bit of a, he called it at the time, a kick up the ass to, to turn this from being hobbyists to being a company, uh, he bought us a booth of packs and said, okay, now you have to, you know, you've got, uh, it was like eight or seven or eight months away from packs at this point and said, all right, now you just have to have the games ready for this. These are games we've been working on for, on and off, you know, as, as our like side, side gigs, I guess. Wow. Um, so that was pretty wild. So we did that. Uh, they, they, we got these games ready, launched them um, across a, a variety of things. One, they, they were mostly on like Steam and Itch, pretty small titles because mm-hmm. we were a pretty small team. But, you know, we, we got these games out there and then from there just kind of kept making stuff, uh, mm-hmm. doing a lot of consulting work. So found a lot of people that needed people who knew how to make games. And we, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been working in Unity for a long time as a, doing VR and AR stuff and, and then kind of moving into games. So just kind of found more and more people who needed help building out games projects and, and kept doing it until this year kind of kept growing and became what it is today, I guess. Awesome. So a bit of and a weird story, but quite, yeah. a, quite a unique one. And the, and the rebrand, that's, uh, that's something recent as well? Yes. So uh, we were trading as Nomos Studios, you know, the, the game studio part of, of the, this bigger company, Nomos, mm-hmm. that I mentioned before. Um, but, uh, they're, they're a much more, how do I put this politely, you know, like corporate company yeah, yeah, than us, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, we, we definitely have the soul of a group of people who just like making weird games. Yeah. Um, so we found that when we were talking to people, either like other game developers or even kind of slightly bigger clients, the, the name and branding that we had from being associated with Nomos wasn't really representative of ha- who mm. we were. So we decided to, uh, to, to rebrand and, and get a brand that felt more like it aligned with who we are. We're still kind of obviously quite closely connected with Nomos, but we now, as Noble Steed Games, that more fits our, our personality mm. and our vibe, I suppose. Yeah, that's awesome. So w- what was that rush like to get those games out to, to PAX that, that time? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit chaotic, wasn't it? I mean, like, I, I think... As any game developer who who has been in the position of kind of doing game development as a hobby and then transitioning to it being their job will know it's 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 a very different vibe, right? Like when you're making games for a hobby, I mean, a lot of the time you don't even really ever expect for them to be completed and released. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, you 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 just make stuff because you like making stuff um, without the expectation of you know in the back of your head to maybe you think oh, I'll release this one day, but. Uh, it was definitely uh, very important for us to have a deadline that introduced yep, some yep. necessary stress into our lives, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really fun. And it got us thinking about f- moving from being a hobbyist game developer to being an actual you know, like game developer that, that, that's releasing projects, um, yep, yep. game developer that's, that's intending to try and make money from what I'm doing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it forces you to think about a lot of different aspects of game development that you wouldn't necessarily have thought about beforehand, right? Like, you know, oh, how we can optimize the Steam store page for this and how we can yep, do yep. all these kind of bits and bobs that um, I guess you could sum them up as saying, forcing you to think about marketing in a way that mm. you probably never do when you're when you're a, a hobbyist game developer that really just wants to make things for fun and not, want, you know, which is totally a valid way to do mm-hmm. things, of course, but, but it's a different mindset. Yeah. And the, and like, 
the Noble Steed Games, you also do consulting, you mentioned, for, for mm-hmm. other companies, like indie yes. companies. What's what's that like? And is it kind of like, um, do you still do projects on this? Or do you still release your own projects and also consult at the same time? What's that balance like? Yeah. Um, so we, we do both. Um, I think over the past two years, especially with COVID, we've found that it was a lot more stable for us to be doing consulting work. So we've done mm-hmm. a lot of that recently, but um, we've got some exciting projects that we're working on at the moment that are our own projects that are, uh, we can't talk about them yet, but but are also very fun. It, it's definitely different. I mean, um, I think people think about uh, consulting work versus doing your own projects as uh, almost like a, the consulting, I guess, is people might think of it as like selling your soul in a way, which <laughs> I don't necessarily think of. In fact, I, I really love doing consulting work and that's why we've done so much of it is there's something really nice about getting to find out about a project, kind of fall in love with it as you fall in love with any project that you're working on that you're really passionate about, fall very deeply in love with it and then do that for about six months or whatever the period of time is. And then that's about the natural time where you start to lose your passion for a project that you've really, really (laughs) fallen in love with anyway. So that's a perfect time to just be like, I've come in, I fell in love with this project, I've given my soul into it, and now I'm going to very happily just walk yeah. away and let you handle yeah. the rest of it, and I'll go on to the next thing that I'll fall in love with. Now let's it's ship it in of, and move yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, it's a very natural um, feeling way to operate that, that means that you're always working on projects that you're really passionate about, I suppose. Yeah. And I saw you you worked on uh, games like Sping. Is it Sping? But mm-hmm. SMG yes, Shooters. I love that Sping. game on on mobile. Like such a yeah. It's a really it's a. I mean, if anyone hasn't played it, it's on it's on Apple Arcade. It's a really lovely title. Just like so simply designed, but so captivating. There's just a, a single yeah. you know, input. That's yeah, that's right. Input. Yeah, we we had we had Ashley on probably I think last year actually. Um, mm-hmm. and we we spoke about Sping and yeah that that game was I was addicted to that for for like quite a while and it was yeah. like seeing it in my dreams the little yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just you know one of those games that like spinning around yeah the spinning yeah. it really yeah. really got in me um and yeah so you worked with with smg studios i think mm-hmm. you also worked with dragon bear as well and mm-hmm. a few, and a few others as well yep. what's what's that like like um in terms of getting work like with with those kind of indie studios and, mm. and just managing those kind of partnerships yeah um it's interesting i i guess it has Kind of, and, and everything that we have done has kind of just come out of, as I mentioned with our origin story, has kind of just come out of what we're passionate about, right? Yep. Um, we we do good work and people want us to help with their games because we're passionate about the work that we do and that has led to us being, you know, having having a variety of skill sets that, mm-hmm. that people like in development and kind of need, you know, multiplayer development, um, which we've done in some of these projects that you've mentioned or um, console porting work, which we've done as well, just because we're kind of passionate about bringing games to more and more people. Um, yeah, I, I guess the process of how we've found and worked with these companies has often just been, we've worked with one company, they liked us and then have mentioned us to another company and we found <laughs> that we like them too. It's really nice being in the games industry in Australia yeah. um, where everybody is really just so friendly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really yeah. nice vibe. That's the best kind of uh, like just, just word of mouth. You know, you're mm. like these people are really good. You should you should work with them. That's the best mm. kind of uh, referral on that as well. Yeah, definitely. And just like it, it it has meant that we find companies that we really gel with, who who we like working with, not just for their projects, which we also obviously usually love, but mm. the people that are making them, we we find ourselves really connecting with. And then you know they'll they'll connect us with other people that we also will probably connect with, just because it's a you know that's that's kind of how it works. Yeah, mm. yeah. 
Mm. And I saw uh, just back on yourself. I saw on on your LinkedIn you, you you actually went to Silicon Valley and you worked there for a bit. Yes. Can you, can you talk talk to us about that? Like, I want to know how how did you? Yeah, what was that like? Because you you said you went from yeah. university straight to Silicon Valley. That'd be yes. Yeah, it was. A, I feel like I've been very fortunate in my life to have a lot of uh, strange opportunities that have presented themselves to me, and I think it's always a good. Uh, way to live your life to try and if you if you're able to say yes to as many weird opportunities as you can and hopefully they'll uh, if they don't even if they don't work out they'll at least turn into something interesting I think mm-hmm. um, so yeah uh, when I was at uni I did I did computer science at at Sydney University um, I guess just by coincidence there was some people who went to you un- to to that uni maybe like five or six years before me maybe a bit mm-hmm. more maybe like eight or nine who then, after they graduated, went and started a company in um, in Silicon Valley. Uh, and our program had a, a like our, our, our degree had a program at the time where you would do, you know, a few months of kind of kind of work placement mm-hmm. vibes, mm-hmm. I guess, with with established companies. And this Silicon Valley company was one of them. Um, and over the over the number of years since they had founded, it had basically been doing this program with Sydney Uni and then just hiring the students. It, this was a, a, a course that you did in your final semester. Um, so they would basically just have these people and if they liked them, hire them. And they So it, it was very strange going from um, Sydney doing this course, then they were like, hey, do you want to come and work with us in, in California? And I, I said yes because it yeah. seemed like an interesting thing to do. Um, and, you know, move, then moving over to California and it's so strange to me, uh, if you haven't lived in California, but this this aspect of, I feel like California, it, you feel like it's going to be very different because it's a different country and, and stuff, right? Yeah. But but actually, you know, there's like gum trees everywhere and like you feel, mm. it, it was very strange to go to the other side of the world and still feel like still be surrounded by a company that was like 60 or 70% Australian yeah. <laughs> in a place that kind of felt very Australian um, and have this vibe. Yeah. So it, it was definitely a very interesting time. Um, it had its downsides as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in the games industry, we talk about crunch culture a lot oh, yeah. and, and how that's so prevalent. Uh, that I think is something that we've it inherited as an industry from kind of startups and the technology mm. industry as a whole. So it, is, it was definitely very bad there, especially in Silicon Valley where, where working conditions are not always great uh, and, and rent is expensive and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. um, so it was a mixed bag. And, and at the end of working there for a year, I decided to not keep working there and come back home instead um, just because it was a bit too intense for me yeah. personally. But uh, having said that, it was it was an experience for sure. So I don't regret it by any means. Yeah, and and so when you came back, you you were you already doing kind of game development like on the side, or how did you transition into like, I guess doing game development? Uh- yeah, um, so the reason that I chose doing a computer science degree was because I liked making little games in my spare time, right? And I thought, okay, well, actually, in conversation with my parents, I was talking about maybe doing some other degrees that I I, I don't think they they really had or that I had seen really strong game related degrees, but they had kind of other ones that were a bit more gamey. And my parents were like, yeah, you could do that, but why don't you do computer science instead? That's a bit more general purpose. Um, Mm. So I was doing that as well as kind of making little games in my spare time as well. Usually very shitty ones, but uh, you know, that's how we all start, I guess. Um, And then this company that I went and worked with that were doing augmented reality were using Unity for a lot of their AR display stuff. So- Oh, nice. I, I picked up a lot of Unity skills doing that. 
Um, I think I had used Unity once or twice beforehand, but uh, it really started to stick with me as an engine then. And then when I came home, uh, actually, I was doing. I started doing a teaching degree and got a job that was um, uh, effectively teaching at a after-school camp that was teaching children about game development. Mm. Um, so I, I did that, and and that kind of involved doing some gamey stuff. I mean, it was again a very different. Uh, experience it wasn't really like game development as so much it was talking about games a lot um but then i just kind of kept doing stuff like that and eventually started properly making games i guess so it's all kind of i mean it all kind of links up like the computer science the like teaching games Mm. they all kind of interwove into yeah what you do now consulting yeah yeah definitely yeah i mean and maybe that's one of the reasons why i've i've fallen into consulting so much is just because if you pick up a lot of different skills that that becomes quite useful to, to a lot of different people. Right. And I think something that I, I've heard talked about a fair amount in games as an industry is the fact that, you know, a, as a creative industry, it's important that people who make games aren't just, don't just experience games, right. You, to, to, to create interesting and unique original creations, you need to have exposure to a bunch of different types of media and art and experiences. Right. So really the, something that, I think I was really lucky to have in my life was having exposure to a number of different experiences that all fed back and informed kind of the creative stuff that I now do, which is great. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's what you always hear that as well with like game designers. Uh, mm. So many game designers just like making games based of, off of ideas that they've seen in their, in their everyday life, you know, or like, mm. like I think the, the one that I always remember is uh, Star Fox or like Lilac Wars back in the day. Mm. And, the, the kind of parallaxing effect of that, I think, was based on uh, the, I think, like Japanese, those, those, I can't remember what they're called, you know, those gates, the orange. Mm, the, the Shinto reli- kind of gates. The Shinto gates, yeah, and like yeah. that kind of effect. So it's like just things like that. It's kind of like you have to have exposure to other things to, to yeah. really get into it. Uh, uh, to stay on the Nintendo track as well, I know, like, I'm pretty sure Pokemon, one of the key influences on the design of Pokemon was like the, the creator was was big into bug collecting when he was a mm. kid and like mm. i think uh i think it was the legend of zelda creator talked about how they would like explore caves a lot when they were younger <laughs> like oh, wow. you know all these things that that make us um unique and interesting humans will definitely feed into making unique and interesting creations right that's just kind of how it works yeah yeah so as part of um uh the consulting mm. do you find yourselves consulting more on um like the project of development um like behind the scenes or the project creation Mm. um a bit of both i think we have picked up a lot of like programming specifically skills um so a a lot of times what we'll do is come in because there are specific gaps that people need help filling that are technical skills that we just have experience in that's always fun to just be like yeah we can help out with that with networking or whatever it is um and sometimes it's more holistic sometimes we'll get approached by people who need a full game developed right and mm-hmm. and we'll work with them on doing concepting and and you know pre-production stuff visualization experimentation and then build out a prototype for them and and all kinds of stuff um it really depends and and we enjoy doing both kinds of work right it's nice to come into projects and really add everything that we can to them and it's also nice to have a project that feels more like we have strong agency over it and to build it from the ground up they're both um they're different ways of working but they're both very uh interesting in their own way it's good to have a mix yeah, and and what what common issue do you find with teams when you come into them? Like, what what's the big thing an indie team needs to solve? 
Um, well, this is a very good segue into something that I talked about recently at, at yeah. the talk I gave at GCAP, I suppose, which was uh, around production and, and how uh, small teams can get by effectively on the bare bones of production when they're not big enough to have a dedicated producer. Um, this is something that we experienced. Obviously, the story I told you about how we started was we were people who were just kind of making games and then a studio grew out of that a bit. And one of the uh, downsides to that was we were very, you know, we were developers, right? Developers mm. and artists. We didn't have a variety of skill sets uh, that, that you need to make a game. And so we had to kind of pick these things up along the way. And this is something that we've seen a lot with some of our smaller clients, especially clients who maybe had a, a project that they worked on, maybe a student project or just a side project, but then maybe they got some funding in, and started building a team around it. it. It's a very similar story to ours of, they have a specific skill set that has gotten to them to this point, but they haven't yet got to the point where they've been able to hire a producer or they're struggling to do that or, you know, they haven't got a full team to support the development of making a game because making a game is tough. It needs a lot of yeah. different skill sets. Um, so, yeah, I, I gave a talk recently at GCAP about basically how small teams of like two to five or six people uh, who don't yet have a dedicated producer can uh, get by until they find one, basically. <laughs> um, just teaching a lot of basic elements of production that you can pick and choose from if you need to kind of improve your processes in a specific area. So um, that was something I had a lot of experience with from ourselves, but also from our clients. And that was a fun uh, uh, fun talk to give a GCAP for sure. Yeah, one of the huge takeaways was like the, the fact that, you know, you have all these tools available to you, but like just knowing like you shouldn't just by default use all of them. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that was like such a big uh, kind of takeaway for me was just, yeah, knowing like, because you hear all these things that you're like, okay, you should do agile or you should do mm. all this, you know, everything that comes along with it. You should do standups and you should do retros and you should, and then, mm. you know, the smaller the team, you're kind of like, just yeah, I'm now more project management. Half my day every day on meetings. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's yeah right. exactly. You and just I think overproduce that's, it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the problems with, um, with being too, I think I, I, I love agile, right? I think it's great, but I think one of its big problems is it's very, very prescriptive. Um, and that makes sense from the context that was originally developed for, which is mm -hmm. taking big software institutions and saying, this is how you should do it to get better results. But if you're a small team and you listen to that advice, it's, it's not necessarily going to work for you because small teams, I much more unique and and have have to worry a lot more about things like overhead, right? Um, and and so something that was core to to what I expressed in the talk is focusing on here's the problems that you might be running into, and if you are running into them, here's the thing that might help. Rather than here's a list of ten meetings you should have, and make sure you have all of them, or else you're not <laughs> agile, and that's bad. You know, it's just like I don't know. It, I, I had an experience of working at a company that was like that. That was like. Here's all the things. Go do them, and and I think everyone at the company was like, "Why are we doing this thing? Why are we doing that?" <laughs> because it, it had been handed down from on high as a "Here's how you do it," as opposed to a, a corporate. Here's yeah. the problem that we're trying to solve. And oftentimes, mm. I have conversations with people who are saying like, oh, "I want to introduce this type of thing because I think it could really help my team." How can I convince them that it's a good idea? And the answer that I always give is, talk to them about what the problem is. And maybe suggest, hey, I've heard about this thing. Why don't we try this? Because this might help. As opposed to saying, here's this meeting that I want to... No one wants to sit down and be told, here's a meeting I want us to add to our schedule. <laughs> like it's such... It's a, a horrifying thing to hear. But hearing, here's a problem that we're having as a team. Here's how we can maybe solve it. Maybe is, is, is better, I suppose. How do you spread that culture of like understanding or kind of 
being aware of problems that exist and then, you know, solving for them, you know, because if you have, mm. and I'm generalizing completely, but, you know, you've got developers who just want to develop, right? Like they don't want to be thinking about all this other sort mm. of stuff. Um, how do you kind of, again, not convince, but yeah, how do you spread that culture where everyone's kind of thinking about problems or identifying them where they exist? Yeah, I mean, something that I think is true is people know if something is going wrong, right? Like people feel if they've done something wrong or or if uh, something's not working or if there's weird friction around an area, people feel it. They just often don't talk about it, right? Because having those conversations, especially with smaller teams who are not, who maybe have a, somebody leading the team who's not experienced leading a team or something like that, it's awkward and it's hard and it, it feels weird to be like, hey, we just had a weird interaction. Should we unpick that? That's something that takes practice and takes takes a lot of effort to get good at. Um, so the, one of the one of the potential, you know, meetings that you could try in your team is a retrospective, which is a, mm-hmm. effectively a chance for teams to talk about things. But the answer, even if you're not, even if you're worried about introducing a new meeting, the answer really is just, have an opportunity to talk about problems and try and do that in a open and vulnerable kind of way rather than, you know, obviously you don't want to come in and say, hey, I noticed we had this problem, let's solve it. You want to say, hey, I had this feeling after our interaction, like, did you feel that? Maybe the answer is no, I didn't think that was a problem and and just talking about it will kind of solve it, solve the tension. Maybe it's, oh, yeah, that's because we don't have the right process for this thing, let's figure out a way to do it, like, I think the answer is just be willing to have conversations, be willing to be vulnerable and be willing to listen, I suppose, to, mm-hmm. to see if, if you're overthinking what a problem might be. Mm-hmm. And, and how, how, how big is your team at the moment? Yep, um, seven, seven of us. So. And how have you kind of found that expanding from this, like when it was a bit smaller and now to, yep. to eight? Like is that, yeah? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think as my job has become more and more about team management and production. Uh, my job is oftentimes just talking to people and helping make sure that everyone else is doing their best, living their best life, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's – I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a very fun thing to do to just be able to create space for people to do their best work, right? Um, I think that's a really fulfilling job for me to have so yeah. i feel like i've been pretty lucky to now have it um changing from a, a small team to a larger team is interesting i think things like production overhead become a, a lot more important um but as long as you're focusing on hiring people that uh f- that you want to work with and uh, that add to your you know your company culture i suppose um there, there's always kind of ways to move through any potential problems that come up that kind of that kind of segues i saw that you have a, a culture uh, book on your website as well, which outlines like, you know, purpose and like all these, all these different, uh, kind of, uh, yeah, I guess things behind that, you know, that shape the culture or the shape, how, how you work, what was your yeah motiv- motivation behind that? And have you found that extremely helpful for both current and, you know, current people, part of the team and, and, and also hiring other people? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it's a bit of a double-edged sword in some ways because, I think everybody hears about, you know, to, to go back to Silicon Valley for a second, like hears about a big company that has, oh, this is our culture and here's what you can find out about our culture. <laughs> yeah, and it's such like 
it makes me shudder thinking about it. You know? <laughs> it's like words that they that the marketing department has put together to try and um, to try and make their company feel slightly better than the other one that people might apply to. Right? Yeah. Uh, we're a family. Yeah, yeah we're a exactly. Family. I, I think it's really it can be really insidious to try mm. and pretend like being a job is more than a job. A job can be really good and it can be something that provides you a lot of satisfaction, but a job shouldn't be your family, right? It shouldn't be your best friends. It, mm. It's it's important to to have some level of, of distinction there, I think. Um, so I, I wanted to set out to write a culture book because I thought it was important for us as we grew as a company to, to kind of put a marker on, here's the kind of things that we strive for, because it, it does help people if, if who are potentially applying, if they say, okay, these are the types of things that this company stands for, you know, self-select in or select out. It helps me when I'm like interviewing people think, okay, does this person fit with what, what we feel like we're looking for in the company? Um, but it also, the idea of having a culture book is still somewhat a bit gross to me. So when I was writing it, I definitely tried to make sure that it was like, here's, you know, something that we have in our culture, right? Um, humility or, or, or passion. And here's the specific things that that means and how we employ that and why it's not just bullshit, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. You're like, how do we currently enact this? And you're like, yeah. regular meetings, you know, like, you know, we do this, we do that. Like, it's it's yeah. very good to uh, have the kind of practical outcomes to, you know, to what you aspire to be. Because like mm-hmm. you've mentioned, these these Silicon Valley companies or just bigger tech companies, they, they'll say that they, you know, they listen to the customer. Like, mm-hmm. I remember working, I went, I worked at a company very briefly and it said like, we listened to the customer, but like none of what they did practically mm. actually enforced any of mm, any yeah. of the, you know, those aspirations. Yeah. I think inherently setting yourself a goal like that, setting a pillar of, we listen to the customer is somewhat aspirational, right? Mm. Because it, you can't always do that 24 seven, right? right? You have to do stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh if you mark it as an aspiration and you actually tangibly set things that you're trying to do to work towards it, then I think mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty good. Right. And that's what mm-hmm. we try and do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, how, what would like when you were going through the process, cause you, you mentioned obviously through the, the GCAP talk, you kind of went through this process of like, here's a problem we encountered and here's how mm-hmm. we solved it. Here's a problem. Has any of those, if you like, if you ranked those, it was one, like, you know, a really big problem that you you encountered or were they all kind of just smaller things that you built up on? You know, mm. Was there ever any point where you're like, okay, this is a significant fundamental problem that we have to, uh, you know, work on or work towards? I think there have been different ones as we've been at different sizes, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it works differently when you're different teams. Um, I, I do think there's often just like a central thread of, of a few key things that come back a lot, like, uh, like transparency, like vulnerability, um, these kinds of things that they ebb and flow depending on how busy everyone is or how stressful a time it is for people. Or, you know, this project's got a deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to to keep things buzzing 100% smoothly all the time. So I think one of the one of the skills of being a producer really is just getting a sense for How's the team feeling? What what are the kinds of things that we might need to suss out and what, what can we start working on? So to, to come back to your question of like, is there a big thing that has been like the main problem or a, a very recurring problem? I think I would say something like transparency over mm. work that people are doing or um, making sure that people have 
clear goals in mind, like all these different things that ultimately boil down to these same one or two core concepts. Mm-hmm. That's usually the stuff that will keep coming back again and again. Mm-hmm. And is that is that exacerbated with like remote stuff that you've been doing? You know, it- oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Like we now are hybrid as as a as a studio, but um, you know, we have some team members in Sydney and one team member in Melbourne, which means we're committed to always being at least 100% remote for some people who want to be remote, even though we have an office space where people can come in as well. Um, so living that and and trying to make sure that we're always uh, helping people feel connected, even though they're remote, or making sure that people always are kind of cared for, even though they're not immediately in front of my face or whoever's kind of yep. looking after them's face, is, is very important to us. So it's definitely got more difficult in this uh, remote world, but I think that's just a reality of how the world works, right? Um, yeah. It's a trade-off. You, you get to not have to sit in public transport for an hour each day, and in yeah. exchange, you get slightly more disconnected from your team members. You know, yeah, it, it is what it is. Yeah, how do you, how do you? I mean, is there any strategies you've you've had to put in place, like, to ensure that you stay connected? Or, mm. I mean, obviously, you've got meetings and things that you've mentioned for mm-hmm. for for being transparent in communications. But is there anything specifically for for remote that? Uh, even from a cultural perspective, like helps mm. keep them, uh, you know, involved. Yeah, we've tried a lot of different things. Um, some have stuck and some haven't. Uh, for a while, we were all doing uh, crosswords, you know, three times a week together on uh, on a Discord call. Um, we've tried a bunch of different software that's like, you know, got a virtual space for people to hang out in, or we've had like Discord set up for that kind of purpose. Um, that stuff has been good, but it kind of ebbs and flows as people mm. again get more busy. The things that have really stuck around, are, um, we implemented uh, from four to five pm on Wednesdays. We have just a studios wide chill session every uh, week. So one person will host it. They'll pick an activity. Sometimes it's a games activity. Sometimes it's not games related. Um, and people will come along if they're able to, which is usually about sixty to seventy people. Per, uh, sorry, percent of the people, not people. Uh, sixty to seventy percent of the team each week. Um, and do an activity. And and that has often been pretty good for us to make sure that we're uh, keeping connected. Um, in terms of like other process changes, we've done things like all of our meetings now have like calendar invites and stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. most of our meetings will take place remotely. Even if people are in the office, we have little people often just be working together and then go off into separate corners <laughs> to join a meeting remotely, which is a bit weird, but you know, <laughs> it works, I guess, uh, just to make sure that it's not like, we're not having in-person meetings that are kind of gently excluding remote people, for example. Um, yeah, a few things like that, but but mainly just we'll usually have active. We have the studios chill hour each and every week, and we've tried a bunch of other things that have been useful at some points and then have fallen off. And you know, we'll try more every so often just to kind of revitalize them, depending on how busy people are. Yeah, that, that hybrid approach is always like so tough. The mm. you know you got five people in a room, but then there's two people on the screen. It's just like, yeah, it always never works. I don't know. Every time yeah. I've been in one of those meetings, it, everyone's just like the people in the room are talking over each other. And then you're kind of trying to figure out what's being said. It's yeah. It, it can be pretty difficult to make it work. I, I think that that friction is just part of being a, a hybrid team though. Right. Is, is being, making sure that when you're planning your meetings, you're, you're setting them out for like thinking about, okay, how will people in the room engage with this part of the, 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 experience or the meeting and how remote people engage with this part how can we make sure that they're both involved like if you're planning activities for something like a retro making sure that they're they're uh, accessible to both in person and remote people it, it it is a bit more to think about but i think it's mm-hmm. worth it again for the trade-off right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, hundred yeah. percent agreed. Um, and what's what's next for 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 Noble Steed? And do you anticipate? You know, what what are the uh, from a production perspective like? Mm-hmm. Do you, are you anticipating changes that will have to be made to accommodate for, you know, maybe an expansion and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, we've got some really exciting projects that we're working on at the moment. Some client projects that are really cool that are running for the next year or so um, that we're really excited uh, aren't announced yet, but when they do get announced, we're really excited to be working on, to be publicly working on them, I guess. And some internal, an internal project that we're driving at the moment, which is um, again, very early days. So I shouldn't talk about it too much, but uh if it goes well, it will hopefully lead to uh, expansion of, of the team to support uh, further development on it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of annoying to be in games and for people to say, oh, what are you working on? And for you to be able to say, can't tell you yet, <laughs> check back in six months. But oh, I guess yeah. it's just the reality of the industry sometimes. Yeah. And uh, will some of that uh, hiring process involve producers in the, in the future as well? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're... I'm definitely kind of stepping into being our producer more actively. Yep. Uh, we have another team member who wants to get more into production. So we're thinking mm-hmm. about whether we're going to be hiring producers more, um, but probably is the answer <laughs> depending on, it, it probably won't be for about six or nine months, but uh, check in if, you know, if you're listening to this late, if you're listening to this six months after it's come out, <laughs> check in with us <laughs> and maybe, uh, maybe we can have a chat about it. Um, but in general, I mean, like we're always happy to chat to people who are, who are on our radar as, a consultancy, it means that we often have periods of work where we actually, oh, suddenly we, we need to put another team on this and we have kind of half the people we need. We might need to bring in some extra people. So it's always good for us to have people in our network that, that we like and that we can talk to and bring in for projects um, if they're kind of interested in, in working in, in that kind of way. Um, so if you're looking for stuff to do, reach out to us. We're always happy to chat, basically. Awesome. And, and one thing we always kind of like to end on is, piece of advice for mm. for those that are listening uh let's let's keep it on 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 topic of of production let's say like mm-hmm. sure. what's a what's a bit of advice that uh that you could give people yeah um if you're kind of getting into being a producer the most important skill to be able to learn is to listen to your team um listen because they will tell you not in so many words but they will tell you when there are problems that you need to worry about uh they will use words like oh, this thing was delayed or, oh, this is taking longer than I thought or kind of phrases like this that you'll start to learn to pick up on uh, that you can just kind of sense if you're a producer or that means there's something going on that we can tackle here. So listen to your team, try and gauge how everyone's feeling and if there are any problems that you can help solve because there often are and people will never say to you, hey, people will very rarely say to you, hey, I've got this problem, this production problem for you to solve. Mm -hmm. Uh, Much more frequently it's a listen for something that, People might not have identified as a problem, but it might be one that you can jump in and help with, and that will is what will make you a really good producer. Awesome. We should we should almost have like a Discord bot or a Slack bot that just looks out for yes people saying keywords. problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're running something like a stand up and you've got it task tracking and you're assigning dates to things, it'll be very easy to be like, oh, this person said this task would be done by Tuesday, yep. and now it's Wednesday and they haven't finished yeah. it yet. Something's going on there. Let me see if I yep. can help them. Um, but sometimes it'll be more subtle, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so how can uh, people find you and uh, and reach out and yeah, follow what you're what you're doing? Yeah. Um, I guess uh, the the best place to follow us as a studio is on Twitter at NobleSteedAU uh, is our is our uh, Twitter account, or you can find me uh, Ruben Morehouse at at Zorglord is my uh, Twitter username, which is not 
super searchable, but it starts with an X and I'm sure you can figure out the rest. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, Ruben. No worries. Thank you for having me on. It's been great to chat to you both. <laughs>